From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is in the house. If you'd like to talk to him, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN, to 55000, wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program and taking care of our social media efforts today, and Matt Kubinski screening your phone calls. And our host as he is every Tuesday on the road again, Father Wade Menezes. Jack, how you doing? Terrific, where are you? I am in Glen Ellen, Illinois in the northwest quadrant of Chicago, and uh, it's great being here this week at St. Petronil Parish in Glen Allen. Father Thomas Molota, a pastor, a shout-out to him and his two priests in residence here, Father Jesus Oliveros, parochial vicar, and the senior priest in residence, Father John Sullivan, 94 years old, Father John, and still going strong. Con celebrates every morning. And so it's great to meet these guys and to be here with them this week. And don't think ill of me, Jack, please, that I'm jumping the gun ahead of Lent to the very last day of the Easter season with this beautiful portrait of Pentecost that's behind me. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're, uh, we're, we're on board here for Lent still, and that's what I want to talk about today. Well, tell me something you didn't know about the patron saint that you now know having visited the parish. You know, it's the only St. Petronil in the entire United States. How about that? Mm. Uh, Said to be either the physical daughter or at least the spiritual daughter of St. Peter the Apostle. He cured her of palsy. She died a virgin martyr, was betrothed to the Emperor Flaccus and uh, turned away his advances and wanted to remain a virgin for Christ and was martyred for that. So uh, quite, quite the outdoor memorial to her, uh, nearly 40 feet tall uh, here at the parish grounds in Glen Allen. So a real testimony to her life as one of the early virgin martyrs of the church, along with, for example, Saints uh, Felicity and Perpetua, mentioned in the Roman canon, whom we celebrated uh, yesterday, yesterday on mm-hmm. the calendar. Yeah. All right, so I get there. I bet there's a whole lot of fasting and abstinence and penance going on uh, over there in Glen Allen right now. 
Well, I've been preaching it, that's for sure. You know, I've been also telling the people to try a different approach to fasting this Lent. You know, Lenten fasts have a tendency to be oriented toward giving up uh, what I called last week the negative of Lent. Things like food, television, or coffee, and I use the word negative as as a philosophical term there. And this is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but there are many other creative ways we can welcome Jesus' healing touch this Lent in our lives uh, by doing a positive, again, a philosophical term there is how I mean it, a, a doing instead of a giving up. And here are some suggestions that our listeners may want to consider. And if you're doing any positives this Lent, give us a call today on Open Line Tuesday, share with us what they are, and share with the other listeners what they are. So fast from anger and hatred, huh? Number one, give your family members an extra dose of love each day, sincerely so, and not fake. For example, pray seven glory bees each day and honor the Blessed Trinity for the specific intention of growing in the virtue of charity towards family members, those whom you share your own flesh and blood with. Huh? First uh, Peter chapter 2 says, strip away everything vicious, everything deceitful, pretenses, jealousies, envy, slander, and disparaging remarks of every kind. Number two, fast from judging others before making subjective judgments of others or situations, and we have the right to judge uh, objectively, of course, but not subjectively. Recall how Jesus overlooks our faults and constantly welcomes us back with his own divine mercy. So share that mercy with others. Divine mercy is God's greatest attribute in any of the church fathers, right? And Luke 6, 37 states, Jack, quote, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Number three is fast from discouragement. Huh? Hold on to God's promise that he has a perfect plan for your life to become that best version of yourself, regardless of your state in life or vocation. In Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, the Lord God tells us, quote, for I knew well and know well the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future full of hope. Our next one on the list, Jack, is fasting from complaining, huh? This is big in, in, in the workforce, I would think, uh, at places of employment, for example, fellow co-workers and whatnot. Fast from complaining. When you find yourself about to complain about something, especially to the point that it will disrupt your peace, Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and recall some of the little and larger moments of joy that Jesus has given you throughout your life. Uh, The third letter of John, verse 11, says, Do not imitate an evil example, but follow always what is good. For whoever does what is good is of God. And Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5 states, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. Everyone should see how unselfish you are. Our next one is fast from resentment, bitterness, fighting, and or quarreling. Work on forgiving those who may have hurt you in the past, whoever they may have been, family, friend, or stranger. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 states, Let us live honorably as in daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen to that. And our last one on the list today, Jack, is fast from spending too much money. Stay out of the mall, Father Wade. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Try to reduce your overall spending, especially on frivolous things, and give these financial savings to the poor. Proverbs 19.17 teaches us, quote, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord at the same time, and he will reward them for what they have done 
for the poor. So just some, some uh, examples there, some pointers of what we can do uh, in regards to the positives of Lent, trying a different approach to fasting this Lent. Notice that all of my examples just now, uh, all six of them have to do with a type of fasting, okay? And we can still take on the traditional fast, of course. In fact, on Good Friday and Ash Wednesday, we have to fast, right? Which brings me to my last point of my springboard today, Jack, for this Tuesday, March 8th, the days of fasting, abstinence, and penance for those of us here in the U.S. The USCCB website tells us that Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are both obligatory days of both fasting and abstinence for Catholics. So those are the only two days of the entire liturgical year where we have to both fast and abstain. In addition, Fridays during Lent are obligatory days of abstinence from meat, all right? All other Fridays of the year, some 45 of them, are to be observed as days of penitential observance. For members of the Latin Catholic Church, the norms on fasting are obligatory from age 18 until 59. When fasting, a person is permitted to eat one full meal as well as two smaller meals that together are not equal to one standard full meal. The norms concerning abstinence from meat are binding upon members of the Latin Catholic Church from age 14 onwards. There's no cap-off uh, age huh, for abstaining from the meat, but for fasting, it's 18 to 59. Members of the Eastern Catholic churches observe the particular law of their own Suri Uris church, the own particular rite they belong to, and their particular laws. And if possible, the fast on Good Friday is continued until the Easter vigil on Holy Saturday night as the Paschal fast, we call it, to honor the suffering death of our Lord Jesus Christ and to prepare ourselves to share more fully and to celebrate more readily his resurrection better prepares us if we take on that fast from Good Friday until the Easter vigil. And we remember, too, that uh, traditionally Sundays are not counted towards the traditional 40 days of Lent's count, but you're welcome to still continue your Lenten practices on the Sundays themselves. They're just not traditionally a part of the count of 40. So last week, if you missed my significance of 40 springboard topic, go back and listen to it. I listed over 16 reasons why 40 as a number is important, meaning transformation, growth, a change of one great task to another great task, uh, spiritual growth in particular, but also physical growth. We, we look at the fact that uh, a female human's gestation period is right, right around 40 weeks. How about Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the desert before he began his official three years of public ministry? So these are beautiful truths about the number 40. How about how about the decade of our 40s? I loved my 40s. I'm 56 now, but I loved my 40s. My 40s were a great decade, huh? So even, even the latest longevity statistics, Jack, show that the average age for those of us living in the West is 78 years. Well, round it off to 80, and what do you have in half of that? You have 40. So there you have it. 40 is a, a great number. It means a lot in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Pick up one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 
That's right, 833-288-EWTN is your ticket to the program. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. EWTN Radio is available on smart speaker systems like the Amazon Echo, Google Assistant, and others. For example, you can listen to EWTN Radio by just saying, Alexa, ask EWTN to play Open Line Tuesday. Check it out today. EWTN, available on most smart speaker systems. Uh, First up today is Linda in Omaha, Nebraska, listening to our tremendous affiliate in Nebraska, Spirit Catholic Radio. Linda, you're on with Father Wade. Father Wade, it's good to talk to you. What I'm doing for Lance is saying plenary indulgences for the souls in purgatory, but I have a question about the first condition perform the indulgence act with the intention of receiving the indulgence while free of attachment to sin. Now, what exactly does that mean? Free from attachment to sin means detachment from sin simultaneously. And and basically, Linda, and this is a fantastic question for Lent, a fantastic practice you're taking on in the positive, praying for the holy souls in purgatory. We can obtain a plenary indulgence once a day. But you're right, one of the conditions to gain a plenary indulgence is full detachment from sin. And what that means is, is the interior disposition in which there is no sin that one is unwilling to renounce. And it's good to have that disposition by way of a firm and deliberate act of your will on a continuum and live it. We want to shun even venial sin, huh? We see this in the life of St. Maria Goretti, for example, and even in in some other younger saints like St. Dominic Savio. The the young ones, especially the younger saints, had a a, a full reality of of the horror of sin, whether mortal or venial. Whereas adults, we seem to somehow think that, that mortal's worse. And it is worse, you know, just off the cuff. It severs the supernatural, the supernatural charity owed to God and neighbor. But, but venial sin surely wounds it and constricts it. And so can, can constrict, for example, or wound, for example, the seven gifts or the 12 fruits working more fully uh, in a person's life, okay? But again, a full detachment from sin is the interior disposition, we could say, in which there is no sin that one is unwilling to renounce and that one lives that disposition on a continuum uh, with a full and deliberate act of the will. So a person, Linda, who is detached from sin, all sin, mortal and venial, recognizes that even a minor venial sin is an offense against the goodness of God, and thus is willing to give up even that as well, huh? How beautiful a thought is that? Such a detachment would be lacking if one has an attachment to one or more sins. For example, uh, perhaps a particular situation one is unwilling to change or a particular disposition uh, one is unwilling to amend and and seriously work on. Um, A detachment from sin doesn't mean one must succeed in changing those things since the future cannot be known, but only that one is willing in that moment to renounce it whether mortal or venial. Great, great question, Linda. Thank you so much uh, for your call. We really appreciate it. Still have one open line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Charlie is next up in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Charlie, welcome to the program. Uh, Yes. Hello, Father. I was just curious. This is more of a... uh organizational question, more sure. opinion, I guess. 
Uh, why is it the church? Because you know, I see from the north and the south, a lot of parishes up north, of course, are uh, are sort of dying out, and churches are being uh, closed up. And it seems like down south, they're, they're doing they're flourishing more. Why wouldn't the church? It's for one church, the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Why would they not almost do like a military system and send priests out in diocese and parishes where they're needed, rather than just allow certain sections of our country or, or the world, I guess, but the country now for uh, to foster more, and the others just die out. Well. Within a diocese whom a man is ordained for, as opposed to a religious order priest like myself, who's ordained for a community that carries out a particular apostolate that received the Church's seal of approval through the works of their founder or foundress, so for example, the Fathers of Mercy are itinerant missionary preachers, uh, but secondarily, we also staff parishes in rural and neglected areas. And we staff such, uh, two such parishes for the Archdiocese of Louisville. Our Father House, called our Generalate, the main headquarters for the Fathers of Mercy, is located in Auburn, Kentucky, right near Bowling Green, Kentucky, about 13 miles west, uh, in the Diocese of Owensboro, Kentucky. But the neighboring um, Archdiocese is our Metropolitan See, and that's the Archdiocese of Louisville. And we, we staff two parishes, rural parishes in in and for the Archdiocese of Louisville. So there you have a, an example where a religious order whose primary apostolate is itinerant missionary preaching to conduct parish missions, retreats, devotions, and so forth, co- uh, to preach at conferences and, and whatnot. Uh, we also have the secondary apostolate of helping to staff parishes, and we do the work that the bishop calls us in to do if we have the men ourselves within our community to do that. So we have three men living in residence at, at the the parent parish there in the Archdiocese of Louisville, and they also, those same three Fathers of Mercy, serve the smaller parish as well, but but the rectory's closer to the larger parish. So there's that example. So then you might have a diocesan priest who's not a religious order priest, who's, who's ordained for a diocese under a bishop. He might see over two or three different parishes, maybe a main parent parish with maybe a thousand families, and two or three smaller parishes that that have uh, maybe, you know, 250 families or 100 families. We see this a lot in the Midwestern states, the, the clear Midwestern states like rural Kansas, okay, or rural Oklahoma. You might have a, a parish with only 35 families. So um, you, the, the, a priest will drive on Sundays to carry out uh, the the sacramental duties there, Mass every Sunday, or, on, or at least on the Vigil Mass of, of Saturday night for that Sunday. And then during the week, there might be a permanent deacon uh, assigned there to visit the sick in a, maybe a rural hospital that's not far from that rural parish that only has 35 families. So you see different models, huh? We also have the great assistance here in the United States of the missionaries from other countries, uh, namely those from Africa, where the church is booming and the seminaries are full. Um, so, for example, a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of Nigerian priests are assisting us right now here in the United States. Also, from India, we have uh, several Indian religious orders and Indian diocesan priests from dioceses in India who are on loan to the United States to help out bishops here, staff their dioceses. Also, uh, we have some Filipino priests that greatly help out, as well as the Vietnamese. I'd say the Africans and the Indians have the biggest presence here in the United States. But remember, there's still some parts here in the United States that are still considered missionary territory. So even if we still had our abundance of U.S. vocations ourselves and didn't need to seek the help from other missionary countries or other countries to send their priests here to help us, 
and it was strictly U.S. priests because we had an abundance here. There's still some parts here in the United States that is um, that that is considered still missionary territory. Uh, for example, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the state of Georgia here in the United States uh, has only two dioceses. It's pretty much the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state. Well, there's talk, or there's been talk in the past, I don't know how active the, the talk is now, of maybe carving out a third diocese because, you know, there, there's a, a, a greater uh, influx of people moving to the south. Uh, Georgia's a part of that influx of people making their homes there in Georgia. We also have um, the immigrants from South America, so we, we want to serve them. Um, they're a great help there with, with the state and its economy as well. So they're, they're taking an active part in their parishes uh, there in Georgia. So there might be a, a, a third uh, uh, diocese carved out there. So there's different models for different things, depending on what the situation is calling for. But um, we ourselves here in the U.S. can fulfill those own models according to the bishop's um, preferences and how he wants to break it down. And also that would include on the bishop's part of inviting missionaries from other countries to come in. So so great question. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Next up is Michael in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Michael, you're on with Father Wade. Good. Thank you both. Early happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy Lent and prayers for the Ukrainian people. You know, uh, Father, sometimes I think we're too hard on ourselves. Uh, we think a sinner's sins will never be forgiven. We do not believe in God's Jesus' mercy. Myself, I tend to commit the same sin over <clears throat> over and over again. I continue to, to go to confession. I'm doing much better. I get embarrassed sometimes because I have to uh, go over the same uh, sins, or sins, sin. But the priests are always friendly and open and um, forgiving. So could you comment on that, please? Yeah, you know, never never be ashamed if you're striving to overcome a particular sin that might even be at a viceful level, a particular vice you're struggling from. In that case, you want to go to confession weekly, and the priest will give you some good advice to help overcome it, uh, even to the point of maybe offering to pray some deliverance prayers over the person who's struggling from the, from the vice, huh? Uh, or assign particular spiritual reading, or give you some spiritual exercises to do in regards to that one particular vice, you know? And you would begin such a confession like this, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession, Father, was just a week, a week ago, and the reason why I'm here today is because because I'm going to weekly confession just to be uh, to just to receive assistance for overcoming a particular vice. That way, the priest confessor knows upfront you're not there on a weekly basis strictly because of scrupulosity. It's very possible to make a weekly confession that is not based on scruples. It's also very possible to go to weekly confession based on scruples or scrupulosity, and we want to be careful of that. But by stating up front that you're there primarily just as a spiritual aid of assistance of the graces received from this devotional confession for this one particular area, the priest knows right away that you're not there for, for scruples. And if he knows you, if you go to a priest who knows you, then he knows that automatically. In fact, he might even be the one who told you, come to confession each week. Whether you struggled this week or not with that particular vice, come to confession. 
and and you you can gain those graces from that particular weekly confession. This is why in, in the in the the great moral theologians, John Paul II being one of them, will tell you that if you're struggling with a particular vice or a particular habitual sin, uh, mortal or venial, and you go regularly to confession, either because you did commit it or you go regularly to confession, maybe because you didn't commit it this last week, but you're still going for the devotional graces, try to go to the same confessor, because it's that same confessor, per se, who knows your situation. If you try to hide the vicefulness of the particular action, whatever it is, and you, you confession hop every Saturday, you confessional hop every Saturday, you parish hop every Saturday, and go to different confessors, those confessors aren't going to know that you're struggling with this. This is why it's good to go to the same confessor, confessor if you're struggling with a particular vice. So great, great question. And offer Holy Communions for yourself, have Masses set for yourself, spiritual reading, and the like. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, a big congratulations to three of our EWTN family members. All of them are celebrating their 11th anniversary. This was a big year for Catholic Radio in these areas. Catholic Spirit Radio in the Bloomington Normal, Illinois area. Good News Catholic Radio in Rio Grande City, Texas. I'm going to tell you something. I've been to Rio Grande City to meet uh, with uh, the bishop down there, and there's a whole lot of Mexico north of Rio Grande City. I'm just telling you, it's down there on the tip of Mecca of uh, Texas. And Sacred Heart Radio in Plainview, Texas. So congratulations to all of you from us here at EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Ralph in Muscatine, Iowa, listening to Iowa Catholic Radio. Ralph, are the muskmelons in the ground yet? No. <laughs> They'll be coming. <laughs> What's your question today, Ralph? By uh, the way, on the triduum, um, my understanding is that the triduum is part of the 40-day Lent fast. It ends Lent. It is sometimes referred to as its own season, and on the circular liturgical calendar, it is has its own color red. But I get a lot of questions here and there about uh, what is the tritium, how does it really fit in, um, you know, with okay. Lent and things like that. So, okay, great question. Well, a fantastic question, in fact. So, um, in the United States, here the USCCB notes that the summit of the entire liturgical year in the Catholic Church is the Sacred Triduum formerly considered a part of the liturgical season of Lent, okay, 
Since 1956, the Paschal Triduum has been regarded as its own liturgical season. It is both the shortest and the most liturgically rich of all the seasons. As the USCCB declares, quote, Though chronologically only three days, the Paschal Triduum is liturgically one day, unfolding for us the unity of Christ's Paschal mystery. So there you have it. There you have it. It is technically its own liturgical season, okay? But it's seen as as one liturgical day, although chronologically it's a three-day period, okay? Uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and, and Holy Saturday. Uh, but it's leading up to the celebration and shows us the unity of Christ's Paschal mystery. Now, the entire Paschal mystery, I've said this before on, on um, Open Line Tuesday, is that four-event event of Christ's saving action for us, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay. Notice the, the USCCV isn't saying here that all four of those take place during this three-day period. No. It's chronologically three days, but it inf- unfolds as one day leading to the fullness, leading to the fullness of Christ's Paschal mystery. Great question. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So does Lent end at the beginning of the Mass of the Lord's Supper? Yes, it does. Technically, it does. And this is why uh, it's suggested in the liturgical documents that you continue the fast that you've taken on for Lent, that you continue it from Holy Thursday all the way through the Easter Vigil of Holy Saturday night, but you don't have to. The 40-day count ends just be, ends during the day of Holy Thursday Day, before the Mass of the Lord's Supper, where we, where we celebrate the institution of the Holy Eucharist. So technically, yes. Yep. Next up is Sean in Sacramento, California, listening on the EWTN app. Sean, you're on with fellow Californian Father Wade Menezes. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Father, uh, for taking the call. Um, the screen caller, he kind of helped me um, and, uh, answer this, because um, it was a little bit confusing when I started. But at any rate, um, knowing that God knows the desires of our heart and knowing we can't change God's mind, why do we pray for intentions, but rather, shouldn't I just pray for the graces necessary to accept His will when His answer to my heart's desires is a no? And to be clear, Father, um, this conundrum uh, came up when I was in prayer uh, the other day for one of my son's friends, who ended up in a tragic car accident and um, ended up in a coma. Okay, well, great great question. We thank you so much for this question. Uh, St. Augustine touches upon this very, very well, I think, and I'll read his, his quote here in a second. But I want you to know first that, you know, great good can come out of an evil, whether it's a moral evil, okay, whether it's a moral evil, or whether it's a physical evil. Okay, a moral evil, for example, um, like one having a past of adultery or fornication, uh, uh, illicit drug use, or or something like that, huh? Um, a physical evil, something like a hurricane or um, you know a tornado, an earthquake. Okay, so whether a physical evil or a moral moral evil, God can bring good out of it. 
So, you know, it could be that this young man that you're referring to in the car accident uh, will grow into a profound faith knowing that his life was spared. Okay, maybe after some rehabilitation to any varying degree, but he'll recognize God in his life. We pray for that. And maybe he already had that sentiment before the accident. Uh, maybe he's a victim soul in that regard if he already had that sentiment toward God before the accident. Maybe he didn't have that sentiment of God before the accident. We, we don't know, okay? But why God should ask us to pray when he knows what we need even before we ask him, that's a better way of phrasing your question as opposed to how you phrased it. Why should we ask God to pray when we know we can't change his mind? Well, wait a minute there. Well, well, wait a minute. I'll, I'll end this question by talking about what Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said about prayer having the power to change the fact of history. Okay, so, so if I forget that point, bring me back to it, remind me about it. But why God should ask us to pray when he knows what we need even before we ask him may perplex us if we do not realize that our Lord and God does not want to know what we want, for as God, he cannot fail to already know what we want. But he wants us rather to exercise our desire through our prayers so that we may be able to receive whatever it is he is preparing to give us. And he can only bring a good out of an evil, whether moral or physical. Uh, God's gift is very great indeed, but our capacity is too small and limited to receive it with our human consciousness. That is why we are told, enlarge your desires. Do not bear the yoke with unbelievers in sacred scripture, the New Testament. Uh, the deeper our faith, the stronger our hope, and the greater our desire, and then larger will be our capacity to receive the gift that God is preparing to give us, which is very great indeed, St. Augustine tells us. When the Apostle Paul tells us, pray without ceasing, he means this— Desire unceasingly that life of happiness, which is nothing if not eternal, and ask it of him who alone is able to give it, God himself. So again, why God should ask us to pray when he knows what we need, even before we ask him, may perplex us if we do not realize uh, that God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, uh, does not need or, or want to know what we want, because as God, he cannot fail to already know it, what we want, right? But rather, he wants us to exercise our desire through our prayers so that we may be able to receive what he is preparing to give us. Now, when little Jacintha and little Francisco were beatified during the Jubilee year 2000, or, or canonized, excuse me, during the Jubilee year 2000, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI revealed the third secret of Fatima, and we know from Lucia's writings what it involved. It involved uh, the Pope walking up a hill, leading the faithful up to a cross. He was shot and he was killed, okay, in the vision, in the vision. Pope Emeritus, in the document where he reveals the third secret, he says, let us never underestimate the power of prayer. He says this example to defend that where John Paul II truly and sincerely saw himself as the Pope in that vision, in reality, in real life, he did not die from the bullet of Muhammad Ali Aja from his assassination attempt in St. Peter's Square on May 13, 1981. In real life, he did not die. Therefore, even though he, John Paul II, saw himself as the Pope in the vision that the Our Lady showed the three children, 
So Benedict posits that prayer has the power to change history and its facts. And this is important right now when the threat of a nuclear war is very, very real. Even outside of the Ukrainian conflict, nuclear war is always a possibility, period. But even more so now with the Ukrainian war. I said Ukrainian conflict, the Russian war on Ukraine. Uh, it, it's always a threat, but particularly more so now. Never underestimate the power of prayer to change history, as, as Benedict says, to, to change the reality of historicity, historical fact. Because again, where John Paul II saw himself in the vision as the Pope who died, in reality, he did not die. And he credited that, John Paul II did, to the prayers of the people praying the rosary as Our Lady asked for at Fatima, especially for world peace. Great question. Thank you so much on the importance of prayer and why do we pray. Thank you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. I think if you take a, a serious look at all the things that have to happen in order to maintain the stability we have throughout all these years, there has to be some sort of intervention that has made that happen. And I think that the accounts of the uh, supernatural intercession of Our Lady are as strong as any, huh? That's exactly right. You know, and, and I, I like to remind my fellow Catholics to always renew in your mind and heart the importance of the Fatima message. It's a fully approved apparition, um, and, and we need to familiarize ourselves with each of those six apparitions and what she told the children in each one of those. Great, great questions today. All of you, thank you so much. Allie is in North Carolina. She's listening to Divine Mercy Radio today. Allie, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon, yes, Allie. Thank I you for your up. call. Thank you for having me. Um, my question is about purgatory. This young man was telling me about, um, asking me about the purgatory and how it is to, that when we go there, it is to purify ourselves. And I didn't really know how to answer him. I'm so sorry, what did he say? You, I'm sorry, what did he say? Could you repeat that, please? That when we go to purgatory, it is to purify ourselves. Yes, okay. And, and, um, and if, if I could have some biblical um, information of where to find it or, or how to answer or what sure. is it well, as far as as far as some quick reference websites that can provide you with a with a plethora of information in regards to scriptural passages and the like, and church father quotes and saint quotes, but especially from scripture to defend it, uh, I like to recommend ewtn.com's frequently asked questions FAQ section at ewtn.com, and also catholic.com, our friends at Catholic Answers out of San Diego. So catholic.com and ewtn.com. Okay. And on their search bars, if you simply put in defense of purgatory or uh, doctrine of purgatory, uh, those sections will come up respectively. But, you know, we, we, it's, it's no secret that the descriptions and doctrine regarding purgatory developed over the centuries. The Church wouldn't deny that. Roman Catholic Christians uh, who believe in purgatory interpret the following passages through the Church's teaching as some of those defenses. 2 Maccabees 12, uh, 2 Timothy 1.8. Um, Matthew twelve thirty two, uh, Luke sixteen nineteen through Luke sixteen twenty six, 
uh, Luke 23, 43, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. Uh, the, the list goes on, Hebrews 12, 29. Uh, and then also the importance of the doctrine of the communion of saints, the, and also the doctrine that nothing impure can enter heaven. What if we die in a state of sanctifying grace, meaning no mortal sin on the soul, but we died at that particular same time of our death that where we were still attached to sin, going back to our very first question this hour on Open Line Tuesday, where the question was about detachment from sin. What if we die in a state where there's no mortal sin in our soul, but we still had an attachment to sin? Well, you don't enter heaven with an attachment to sin. Heaven is absolute purity and, and gloriousness. It's the beatific vision. It's, it's eternal beatitude. So the, the doctrine of purgatory, in addition to all these scriptural passages that I just gave you, um, is also a, a reasonable doctrine. And those two websites uh, that I gave you, catholic.com and ewtn.com, will help you greatly in that regard. But, you know, we talk about the doctrine of the communion of saints, we're referring to the three-tiered hierarchy of the doctrine of the communion of saints, the members of the church militant, those of us still living on earth, fighting the good fight, as St. Paul would say, uh, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, who are already in heaven, and I don't mean just the canonized, I mean everyone who's in heaven, who has a soul in heaven, because they went to heaven either immediately after their death, or they went to heaven... Uh, via purgatory, after their purification, their temporal punishment was purified, they entered heaven. Uh, you know, we only have, as, as a historical fact, we only have, and I say only in quotes, uh, we only have about eight to 10,000 formally canonized saints in the Catholic Church. Well, I have the virtue of hope, one of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. I have the virtue of hope that there's more, much, 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 much more than eight to 10,000 souls in heaven. You know, some Catholics tend to think that, that the souls in heaven are only the, the, the formally canonized. No, I have the virtue of hope that the, the non-formally canonized outnumber the formally canonized by the Church. So the members of the Church triumphant are those in heaven, the members of the Church militant are those of us still living on earth, and the members of the Church suffering, or the members of the Church penitent, is the other phrase that's used, are the holy souls in purgatory who are assured heaven. I'd like to recommend to you my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, which you can get at EW10.com. Again, uh, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, where I talk about purgatory in my chapter on heaven. Great question, and again, two great websites to help you out to further your arguments and, and defenses uh, apologetically. Be sure to check out Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight at 8 Eastern Time. Mother talks about the signs of God's love that are all around us and discusses the ways that he has shown his love for us. That's Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Scott in East Tennessee, uh, watching us rather on YouTube today. Scott, you're on with Father Wade. Good afternoon. Thanks for your time. I was wanting to ask about Mark 11, after he curses the fig tree and tells us about prayer, um, about not doubting in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it shall be done for you. And particularly verse 24, I'm not sure which translation is correct. One says, believe that you will receive it and it shall be yours. The RSBCE says, uh, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So once, you know, this past tense idea, I'm hoping you can clarify why the translations, these are both Church-approved translations, um, what the underlying Greek might actually be, why it's translated that way, but also 
how we're to actually do that and whether Jesus is actually speaking to us in this passage, because it, you know, when, when, when we pray for healing and then we don't see that we're getting any better, it seems as if Jesus is commanding us to sort of lie to ourselves that, oh, yes, I'm receiving the healing when it doesn't really look that way. Um, okay, great. On that. Great question. As far as the, the original Greek and the two translations, that would be a fantastic question for Father Mitch Pacwa. He is the scripture scholar of our five open line hosts, and he, of course, is on Wednesdays. But I will tell you this, in, in my view of that passage, the two translations are one and the same. Again, because our way of thinking is not God's. And God's way of thinking is not ours. And, and if you didn't hear what I just said, uh, what St. Augustine says about why do we pray, why do we need to pray if God, who knows all things, already knows what we need even before we ask it, it's because he wants us to exercise our desire to receive whatever it is, whatever it is that he's preparing to give us, which may or may not be the thing we're asking for. So to me, that's the answer that can be applied to either translation with no conflict. Um, secondly, uh, if the prayer doesn't seemingly uh, seem to be answered, why is that? Is it because you've put a time frame on it as a human person? Is it because uh, the time frame has already passed and, or you found out that, that somebody else was definitely hired for that job, which means it definitely wasn't you, so now that, that hope is gone, why didn't I get that? Is, is, is God trying to play an evil game with me? Well, remember here, every aspect of suffering that we endure has a redemptive and healing reality to it. In other words, the fact that suffering can be saving and redeeming. I've said before in the past on Open Line Tuesday, you know, suffering unites the sufferer with Jesus Christ and his cross, which itself was meant to be saving and redeeming for all. Uh, suffering helps us also to be more sympathetic toward those who are suffering in whatever capacity they're suffering, even though our suffering may be of a different kind. Embracing suffering also helps us to expiate. This is a big one here. Embracing suffering helps us to expiate and make reparation for past sins that we've committed, that is, the temporal punishment due for them, which must be expiated either here on earth or in purgatory. And I want to expiate mine now while still living on earth for this average of 78 years that the human person here in the West lives, an average of 78 years, so that I can attain the greatest grace of entering heaven immediately upon my death. Give me the suffering now, Lord, and not only that, but I do ask for the courage and the fortitude to be sustained by your grace while I'm embracing that suffering right now. Also, suffering can be offered up for one's personal needs and intentions and or for the personal needs and intentions of others, living or deceased. If living, this has to do with the doctrine of both condign merit and congruent merit, or for the deceased, where you can offer the sufferings for their alleviation if they are in purgatory. If not, your offerings will be applied to a soul that can benefit from them. That's the constant teaching tradition of the Church and the popes who have spoken on purgatory, and especially the doctrine of indulgences. Also, suffering strengthens personal character. And in 2022, we need personal character. Amen, brother? Uh, thus leading one to grow in such virtues as what? Patience, courage, fortitude, fidelity, and peace. What are the words after the hour fathered every Mass? Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, I leave you peace, 
my peace I give you. In other words, he wants to give us his peace, huh? He doesn't want us to fall to pieces. And what comes after that? Protect us from all anxiety as we wait in what? Joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, when's he coming? Well, at the end of time, at the second coming, but is he coming a time before that? Yeah, when Father Wade dies. Father Wade has his own particular judgment with Christ. So he's coming then as well. And then at the general judgment, Father Wade's particular judgment will be ratified. Okay? So suffering strengthens that personal character, thus leading to grow in such virtues as patience, courage, fortitude, fidelity, and peace. And it leads us to protect ourselves from that anxiety and joyful hope as those wordings of, this, of the Roman ritual in the ordinary form of the Mass after the Our Father say so well. And then lastly, number six, suffering benefits the caregivers of another person and that he or she or they, the caregiver or caregivers in the plural, can benefit from and strengthen their embrace of and grow in such virtues as compassion towards the other, empathy towards the other, patience toward the other, uh, faithfulness in God while serving the other, because Jesus talks so much about serving the poor and disenfranchised and the sick. And Mother Teresa founded the Missionaries of Charity, which serve what? The poorest of the poor. So suffering benefits a caregiver or caregivers in that we learn compassion, we learn empathy, we learn patience and faithfulness in God while we're serving the poor. So these truths apply to those passages about, you know, what, what sustains us, what doesn't sustain us. Was the prayer answered? Was it not answered? Because we have a very limited view in our humanity of, of seeing what it's all about, and God's ways are not our ways. This is why Augustine's answer to why we pray when God already knows what it is we need is such a powerful answer. So great question, but as far as the Greek and the nuances of the Greek and the two translations, I'm sure the Greek is, is, is the same in one type, one way. You'd want to go to why the English was translated from the Greek in two different ways, I would think. And uh, that would be a great, a great question for Father Mitch. Thank you so much for a great question. And just in the few seconds we have left here, uh, Father Way, Donna in South Dakota watching on YouTube, wanted, she said when she was young, we would cover statues in purple, do they not do that anymore? You are most welcome to do that. It's no longer required with the reform of the sacred liturgy uh, leading up to Holy Week into the sacred triduum, and then they're uncovered, of course, for the, for the Easter vigil. Uh, but, but you are still welcome to do that. A pastor is still welcome to do that. It was to simplify the liturgy, uh, and, and, uh, and, and at the same time, it was never banished. That practice of covering with the violet cloths, statuary, and crucifixes was never banned or banished. It's just now merely an option. Where can they find more about the Fathers of Mercy? At fathersofmercy.com. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer and social media maven, Mr. Michael McCall, and our call screener, Matt Kubensky. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Father Mitch is in the house. Until we get together then, God bless.